let's start then with the most basic question because again as I mentioned to you before we started recording I know mm. absolutely nothing Tiff about yeah. Simon Vey nothing so who is Simon Vey have I pronounced that right well I think people pronounce Vey in lots of different Vey or Vey you know whatever so, but I, I say Vey but Simone Vey uh, was born in 1909 in Paris and she died in 1943 at the age of 34 so she has this very kind of intense short life and she has I think what characterises her mainly is the kind of overlapping of identities that she had so she has or had uh, she's a political activist a labourer a philosopher a mystic a theologian a writer, she she wrote a play, um, Marxist, and, and, and a Marx. Well, uh, problematic, but there are elements of Marxism in her thought, definitely. It's, a, it's an interesting synthesis that all of those a mystical things. Mystical Marxist, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and she was also a teacher. I think that's really important as well because I think that she spent a lot of her time thinking about the best ways to kind of com- you know communicate her ideas as well. So I think a teacher is often let out from her identity, but I think it was quite important. But she she came from quite a brilliant family as well. Her brother was a very famous uh, mathematician, Andre Vey. He he was very much the brilliant one of the family, uh, and so Vey from a very early age felt quite um, terrified by that kind of proximity to truth, and it was quite motivating for her, you know. So was she the eldest? She was the youngest. The youngest. She was the youngest. I think those kind of it, the, you know it was it, it, she came from a an affluent middle class Jewish but not practicing family. That's important for Vey's later. Secular of, Jewish, you would say. Secular Jewish. Um, so that's important for both her kind of biography as a secular Jewish person in Europe at that particular time in the early twentieth century, but also important in terms of thinking about her religious thought later on as well. On that, mm. is she a Christian or is she a a radical Christian or a heterodox Christian might be a way of putting it. She is and she isn't. She, um, I recently was at a, um, uh, uh, ran a seminar where someone was speaking to another colleague of mine and said, you know, uh, called Vey a Christian and he turned around and said, well, for Vey, Christ is the only true Christian. Uh, so <laughs> she, <laughs> so, very exacting and rigorous. Very exacting and rigorous. But she, she definitely was a Christian, but she never entered any church formally. Uh, she never uh, was baptised, she refused baptism, but she definitely uh, is a Christian theologian and believes in the kind of central tenets of Christianity outside of that kind of formal church of, of Catholicism. And she kind of renounces her Judaism as well. Can I ask, why Simone Weil? What, why, what draws you to her? What do you find in her? Or what do you find interesting? Or why, how does she speak to the moment? Yeah, yeah. I think she, she does speak to the moment, definitely. I think that's that's uh, a happy coincidence. The original motivation... Well, I, I started reading Vey during my Master's. I was reading her alongside Deleuze and Guattari, and I was really interested in her concept of decreation, um, which we'll maybe talk about later. But ultimately, I'd just written this kind of PhD on Spinoza, you know, the arch-rationalist, as it were. And Vey was my kind of other she was the one who pushed back on that kind of dogmatic spinacism pushed back on that kind of very rationalistic way of understanding things um and and to be quite frank she's a beautiful writer and she just draws you in even though you think oh god i don't quite know if i agree with what you're saying i don't quite know if what you're saying is uh is problematic or not um why do you make me feel uncomfortable? And it was it was really interesting for it's me. It's usually a good sign, isn't it, when a thinker makes you feel uncomfortable? Absolutely, yeah. That's something's a, happening then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something's happening precisely. That's, that's the very the way that they would put it as well. She she definitely goes against the grain of some of your habitual thoughts. And I think it's very easy just to read people when that doesn't happen. I don't think we realise that quite rarely happens, actually. I think one of the things that interested me when I was reading up on her is that she comes out of, as well as being a heterodox Christian, critical Marxist, and as you say, pedagogue, worker, labourer, activist, political militant, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. She's also comes out, philosophically, she comes out of the existentialist tradition, the phenomenological tradition. So she comes Mm. out of thinkers like Sartre, Mm. Heidegger, and uh, Simone de Beauvoir, people like that. What's her relationship with that tradition Mm. and how perhaps does she deviate from it? Yeah, distant is her relationship to that tradition. Um, There's a famous story of the first time she met uh, Simone de Beauvoir. It's funny you should mention that, (laughs) because I have a quote. Go on. Shall I read it? Yeah, you have the quote, I don't. I got the quote here and this is from Simone de Beauvoir's uh, autobiography, Mm. Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. Yeah. Okay, and this is what Simone de Beauvoir says. I think it's, well, I'll let you talk about it, but I'll read the quote out so everyone can hear. 
I was told on hearing the news that she, they, had wept. These tears commanded my respect, even more than her philosophical talents. I envied her for having a heart that could beat right across the world. One day I managed to approach her. I don't remember how the conversation began. She declared in no uncertain terms that one thing alone mattered in the world today. The revolution that would feed all the people on earth. I retorted, no less peremptorily, that the problem was not to make men happy, but to find a meaning for their existence. She looked me up and down and said, It is easy to see you have never gone hungry. <laughs> Our relationship stopped there. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> but I think it's really telling, isn't it, about it, what a type of a person a thinker she was. It's the most telling quote, I think. Um, and it's not hyperbole. You know, that really is, that, that is, that is very to a T. Uh, that, that's why she's the most philosophical person in the world and the least philosophical person, sorry, the, the, you know, the, the least and the most philosophical philosopher, um, precisely because she, uh, she's, she is interested in the in the very philosophy's relationship with the very kind of material conditions of the person, um, and she sees see stuff as, 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 as like hunger, oppression, affliction, um, these sorts of things as as being central to her. It's thinking. Real material things, though. Real material things, but material things in the in the kind of broadest sense um, of uh, you know extending beyond the kind of person, as it were. Yeah, so life is not pursuit of meaning, which is mm. de Beauvoir's mm. point, you know, that mm. we need to find meaning for us and then the rest of the things can take care of themselves, yeah. you know, like uh, food, yeah. shelter, yeah. All, yeah. The, yeah. all those things at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Simone Weil is reversing that in some way. She's saying that actually, no, it's the material, which is interesting for a spiritualist or, yeah. or a mystic. Yeah. She's emphasising uh, the materiality yeah. of human life. And so it's a search for sustenance rather than a search for meaning, I think. Uh, a search for sustenance is, is a really good way. Of, Spiritual and physical. Yeah, it, that's a really good way. I mean, eat, eating and food is a really interesting thing that, that runs throughout Faye's work. Uh, the idea of nourishment is, is very important for her. She, she says, you know, the, the real state that we want to get to um, is to be able to be nourished by something without eating it nourished by something you know uh, n she says for instance that beauty when we perceive beauty it needs to uh nourish it uh, it needs to kind of nourish us but as soon as we try to have it to grasp it to eat it uh we destroy it so she she's using she's thinking about the relationship between eating and food and nourishment and how and how those things the human being kind of turns on those relationships and 30 years later we get chicken soup for the soul or yeah exactly yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> precisely um but you know the the the, the Beauvoir coat is is completely uh telling it is you know that's her main concern her main concerns are kind of practical she's looking for those real problems of the human condition that she can then take back and approach a person who's suffering and say here's my way of kind of alleviating your suffering so she's trying to construct a distinctive form of ethics was it one that deviates from you know our traditional ways we approach ethics and philosophy utilitarianism virtue theory kant deontology things like that it's closest to, to probably virtue ethics but there are certain concepts that they develops to kind of think about her ethical theory which are you know quite original so uh, attention um is is central to her you know the concept of attention is is that if we can attend to the person in a proper and adequate and sufficient way that ethical act will be enough for the other person to it's kind of a rescinding of ourself and an allowing for the other person to come forward so it's a stepping backwards so that someone can come into our space so in that respect ethics is an active form of passivity it's a kind of um she likes the analogy of the lever. The lever can kind of raise something up by pushing something down. You have to go down in order to raise up. And so for her, that kind of self-sacrifice, that stepping backwards is, is key for ethics, for Faye. You know, an active passivity, a non-acting action, as she puts it. So the ethic is, ethical is first and foremost physical. Mm. How do those two things 
I mean, how do, you know, the question goes back to Plato, like how mm. do you reconcile this dualism between the physical and the immaterial? Mm. So how does she how does she draw those things together, do you think? How does she reconcile the... the this might come up again later. The title of, of the kind of most famous book that people know of Faze, which is not even a book of hers, Gravity and Grace, it's a, a selection of what look to be aphorisms, but they're actually notes from her notebooks. But the title, Gravity and Grace, is taken from the kind of two competing conditions of the human being and and the world in general uh, gravity represents our material rootedness as it were it, it represents necessity as such so kind of like um the order, to of, earth. Yeah. the order of nature the causal becoming of things the kind of um obedience to kind of the obedience that matter has to matter and grace is the other thing grace is that space which is which is that space within necessity where we have the possibility to rise above it and the possibility for god to come into us basically it's it's an absence so the reconciliation of the kind of of those two things can be kind of thought about in gravity and grace they're not opposing but they do have a very difficult relationship where we can fall into one more than the other we can fall into the the needs of the body uh, and necessity and think only through those things and we neglect to leave space for removing ourselves from that world, whilst whilst also not removing ourselves from that world. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. And that perhaps can provide us with a seg to talk about one of her first published works, because a lot of her work is, as you said, like is published posthumously. Yeah. It's collections of notes mm. and aphorisms and things like mm. that. But one of her first systematically worked out books is and have I got this right suffering oppression liberty yeah okay so well let's talk generally to that Tiff what is she trying to accomplish there with that work yeah so like you say the the book oppression and liberty is made up of a collection of essays written before what we might describe as a religious turn um so Uve's later work is characterized by several mystical experiences her earlier work is characterized by a very active uh, political life it's nevertheless philosophical because she's you know she's still writing her dissertation on Descartes and things like this but she's grappling with Marx and essentially in those works she's trying to understand uh, the mechanisms of oppression um, and the effects of the structural forms of, of oppression of oppression on both the individual and society and you can see how that manifests in both a kind of theoretical interest but also she wants to find out how oppression works so she can take it back to the trade union activists that she's working with and say look this is how we can alleviate the suffering of the workers you know she's not doing it just as an academic thing she wants to go back into the factories and she did actually take a sabbatical and went to work in factories for a while as well and this was one of her criticisms of, of Bolshevism wasn't it was because uh, well, <laughs> she basically said that there were not without good reason I think she said that the leaders of the Bolshevism your Trotsky's your Lenin's were basically bureaucrats like who never worked a day in their life yeah, <laughs> effectively yeah. they didn't work in a factory they Absolutely. Know what it was like. and they took a lot of those people so Trotsky for instance when he was in Paris they sorted him out with lodgings and he stayed with he stayed in their family home and they would have these blazing rows with him and stand you know really stand toe to toe with him and apparently was the only person who could who could do that it was it was fantastic but <laughs> but, but yeah the, the analysis of oppression is is the is the key is the key thing in those early works um uh, understanding uh how oppression works in in the modern factory is very important understanding um uh, that you know that that's one of the reasons that she went off and took this sabbatical and went and worked in a factory um and uh but like i said all, all, all of that figuring out was done in view of kind of going back to those people she was working with, the kind of trade unions, the activists, etc., and saying, look, this is what we can do. So, it's sort of a real profound practical motivation. Very practical motivation, I think, yeah. So what are those, why put those three things together? Suffering, I can understand, oppression, suffering tend to go together. Liberty, what does she mean by that, do you think? I mean, and also I think, Tiff, what I'm driving at there is, in terms of the question of liberty, what does she take from Marx and what does she, how does she deviate from Marx as mm. well? That would be interesting, I think. Mm. It's very difficult because this early vey in oppression and liberty is very different to the late phase so the word oppression in the early vey in oppression and liberty becomes the word affliction in the late vey and the key difference between or the key move from taking that kind of marxist vocabulary of oppression and turning it into affliction is the recognition that 
there aren't just kind of economic and material aspects to oppression there are very deep spiritual aspects to oppression that the word oppression can't capture affliction is it takes into account the entire person soul body economic material situation etc and it really it takes into account not just a person's not just that a person is oppressed economically or something like that but that that something of their soul has been kind of lacerated with the way they're being treated that they're being treated like a thing like matter the factory has turned them into a thing they talks about them receiving being branded in the factory you, you, you know you, you you become like a piece of leather that's branded you're just a thing Which and is very so, marxist that idea so i'm alienation or the reification of the object yeah absolutely alienation is key um a, a, they would cause uprootedness but it differs probably to marx in her later conception of freedom which and got you know they are so difficult because she's a contradictory thinker as in she uses paradox and so she'll say one thing and then she'll contradict herself and contradictions as methodology is important in they but if i was going to say if i was going to give try and give a very basic um, succinct description of, of her idea of freedom it would be the idea of freedom of as obedience willful obedience so uh, so being willfully obedient to the kind of necessity of the world um, is the only way that we can become free and this is why she thinks that in work in kind of labor and in the factory we can't be free because our obedience to the machine is not willful at all what we need is to completely reconceive the notion of labor and work in the future such that we can willfully submit to our work be obedient to the kind of the mechanism the, the, the mechanisms of, of the machine and the factory and be free in our kind of willful obedience of that and that's bound that's bound up with her kind of theology um a kind of theological understanding of freedom as well that's interesting so it's not a liberal view of what freedom is, because a liberal view of freedom, in a very basic sense, I know it's a bit mm. more complicated than this, but the liberal view of freedom is the idea that the individual is autonomous and self-legislating mm. and drives themselves mm. and personal. Mm. So this is probably why she's going against the grain of modern, well, modern life, isn't it? She's saying that the individual is not important, yeah. or is trivial or secondary at least in some way, and. There's an, there is a, an intrinsic anti-individualism in, in her work. Absolutely. And she's... So the question, I suppose, for me then, Tiff, is why does she reject the idea of personality in favour of something called, for her, the impersonal? The impersonal mm. is what's important mm. and one of the key tenets of the formation of ethical obligation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Abs- yeah, no, that that is really key. Uh, the beauty of Faye is she can explain things really, really simply sometimes and in, and sometimes incre- incredibly incomprehensibly. But she sees a, a very clear alliance between truth and the impersonal. And the example that she, she turns to on that is if I do a kind of mathematical sum um, and I get it wrong, say I say 4 plus 4 equals Twelve or something like that. The error bears the mark of my personality. But if I do a mathematical sum, four plus four equals eight, then I'm almost not there. I've just done what anyone else could do. It's a universal truth. There's no, there's no, there's nothing of me in that calculation. So error always bears the mark of the person, um, and that then stands in the way of of truth, essentially. This is Platonism, then, isn't it? Basically, yeah. She she is a Christian. Platonist. She read Plato as a mystic. I mean, that's one of the main, you know, one of her main things. So she she's absolutely convinced that you know one needs to remove their person in matters of of coming to the truth, uh, and that also has a bearing on her ethics as well. One needs to remove the remove our person in order to get to the truth of the other that we're trying to kind of understand, and that's the that's the function of attention for her. Right. So attention then is the opposite of this of what she calls attachment. So attachment, and correct me if I'm wrong and see if I'm getting this right, are as persons, as individuals, we are attached to the world. We're attached to the material world. And that's where we are brought to earth. And we, I suppose we are embedded in needs, desires, mm. worries, anxieties, all of the things that make up a life. Mm. And she thinks that one of the most important things, one of the most enriching things that the human being can do is to disattach mm-hmm. or engage in detachment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so could you explain how that works, perhaps? That, that, yeah. that notion of detachment? Yeah, 
Absolutely. Detachment is 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 really key for Vey, and I think it, in her kind of ethics. But I think it kind of begins in her uh, her creation theology. So she has a very unique creation theology, whereby she conceives of something called de decreation. For her, God creates by pulling backwards, by kind of removing himself so as to allow something else to occur so god is absolute kind of perfection and goodness but in order to create he needs to he needs to create those things which are full of imperfection so humanity time space matter necessity so the greatest act god could do the most free act is to create something other than himself so he and to do that there has to be a detachment and removal a kind of a decreation now they thinks that the kind of in order to to act in in a similar way that we need to remove ourselves that we need to kind of decreate de ourselves so as to allow space for others um, and that's what also detachment is about it's about de de detaching yourself from those things which kind of coalesce around your personality um, and which are kind of calcified by the kind of imagination our imaginary understanding of our place in the world builds up like an ego which prevents us from getting to the other so forms of detachment for her are, are all about allowing for space for silence for the other person for the kind of the afflicted the suffering of of, of anyone to come forward um, we can't actively go towards it you need to to wait and uh, and make space for someone and that's important because you know again that mirrors the idea that god is absent in the world you can't you can't drive towards God, you need to wait for God to come to you. And that absence or the void is important. You've got to you've got to kind of sit with it. Um, and she thinks that we should kind of cultivate that void, that kind of space, that absence, in order for the other to come to us or to or to, or to, or to allow the other to emerge. And that's about it. And that's detachment basically. Yeah, and that's so that's also the impersonal then as well, because it puts us in conjunction with that that mystical truth that yeah. you're talking about. The impersonal is I suppose that's the next question then. Why is the impersonal? Why is it sacred? Why is it holy? Why is it divine? Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, that's a really good, that's, again, that's a really good question. She has this famous essay that's translated as called Human Personality. And in this essay, she says, what stops me from poking out someone's eyes? You know, it's not that they have a right to sight. It's And it's not, you know, their person that's stopping me doing that. Because if I was to poke out their eyes, their person would still be there. What's stopping me poking out someone's eyes she said is what is sacred in every human being and that is the inalienable expectation that good and not evil will be done that will befall us so there is this kind of sacred to every human being that expects good and not evil to be done to them and that is what is kind of sacred in people but it's fundamentally not the person the person is the bearer of rights the bearer of a particular form the bearer of all these kind of ideas that we get from society but it's not what matters fundamentally it's not why it's not why we seek to be good to people, not because of their person, it's because of that sacred expectation that we don't want to, what she calls, lacerate by acting in a bad way. And that then leads on to the question of need, I think. Mm. So it's, it's there's some form of reciprocity taking place in, in this when we engage in impersonal thinking or when we detach ourselves or we, we try to you know, transcend our individuality that's enriching for us, according to Vey. That's something which gives us, it makes us more human in some sense. Mm. It's an interesting paradox that mm. I'm, I'm slightly struggling with. I'm trying to think through that we need to detach from our personality in order to make ourselves more human. Is that yeah. would that be right? It, 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 the pa paradox is the way of describing it. Vey works, her currency is contradictions, her cur currency is paradox. Points in which we come across something intractable, you know, a, a contradiction that uh, which doesn't allow us to reconcile it with our intellect, that's at the point when suddenly we have to go beyond the intellect and we have to understand things through something else so she's always thinking in contradictions uh she says you know in one of her notebooks you know method of thought think something and then think how its opposite is the case and as soon as you have that kind of 
that kind of generative, I hesitate to say dialectics, but you know, generative kind of contradiction, your thought can go in, in lots of different different ways and pushes you into different things. So you're right, so the very fact that you're struggling to kind of understand what it means to at once remove your human personality, which and how that would then make you even more human, um, is exactly the paradox she's talking about. And again, the, you know, the idea of the lever, the kind of the pushing down and the rising up at once. Uh, pushing down one side rises up so you can have two opposing movements all bound up in one thing you know that's a paradox it's both downwards and upwards and that's what she's kind of thinking through yeah it does remind me of a lot of what other mystics do i mean different thinkers i think but martin mm. buber would be a an obvious uh mm. correlate there yeah. now the next thing i want to talk to you about if and maybe you can help me understand we've mentioned it already this gravity and grace could you help me understand then what is gravity? What is grace? So gravity is the movement downwards. As you said, it's very literally gravity. And grace is that which is lightness. It's the move, the ascent towards the spiritual, mm. I, I'm guessing. And that does that mean then, if she is very much the mystic, and if she is, corresponds with the other mystics that I'm aware of, that then means that gravity, the earth, and the material world is in some sense illusory. She talks about this as well, doesn't she? That that, that which brings us to earth are things like idolatry, mm. uh, violence. Mm. Those very negative activities mm. tend to be of the material world, which contradicts, I suppose, what she was, yeah. her earlier her earlier work. But I'll yeah. let you uh, talk to that, perhaps. Uh, again, another uh, classic paradoxical part of ve is that you know the supernatural almost has to happen within the natural. So whenever we think of that idea of escaping escaping necessity escaping gravity well it always has to happen kind of here almost which is which is you know they was very keen on you know plato's allegory of the cave and yes we ascend towards the heavens in plato's allegory of the cave and we kind of stand a, 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 above a, above and outside the cave but ultimately we have to return to the cave and we're always in the cave and that's our situation and the same is 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 the case for they so grace is not something that is opposed to gravity, but it's the allowing of a space within gravity where we can kind of think and be outside of it. Um, it's a void, essentially. And we have to kind of uh, live with that void, live with that emptiness, that absence, in case something needs to fill it. We, we're, Our lives are filled so constantly with what they call kind of imagination that there's no space for anything else. There's no space other than our personality. Um, so leaving an absence, leaving a void where God can come down or where another person can kind of demand our attention is for her important. But, you know, that happens within the world. You know, they is a supernatural thinker, but one that's rooted in the kind of the human condition in the kind of material world of, of necessity. And that, all those dualisms, I suppose for those people listening, you know, 20th century continental philosophy is always very much anti-dualistic. You know, mm -hmm. you think of something like Derrida, anti-binary mm -hmm. oppositions. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of like even Hegel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, you, you he very much talks about like, you know, we need to overcome dualisms because would it, what makes a dualism work logically is that one side of the, the dualism male, female, spirit, matter, is mm. rendered secondary, derivative, or unintelligible. That is the discourse of postmodernism. That's, mm. that's you get in your Jerry's, your Foucault's, your Judith Butler's. She's going in a different direction here, isn't she? Which is quite interesting. Isn't she? She's saying, actually, no, we need to exist with these oppositions. And her book is full of these antithetical contradictions. I, I listed some of them out here, so I'll mm. just read them out so the listeners get, a, uh, get, the, get the notion. And she's looking for balance, I think. That's what... Mm you know, balance in our lives. Mm. Uh, so she's talking about balance, counterbalance, action, reaction, entropy, retrogression, opposition, oscillation. All of these terms seem to, yeah, they're operative dualisms, aren't they? Mm. You know, she's not mm. getting rid of the two terms. They're functioning simultaneously. Mm. That's what I find quite interesting. Have I got that right? I think I think that's a really good way of putting it. I, th I think that dualisms are generative for they. Uh, con contradiction is generative because as soon as you as soon as you solve a contradiction you come down on one side or the other and you lose and, and you lose basically the generative the generative capacity of, of the kind of um friction and i think that dualism is very important to her or kind of or, or contradiction because it is just the human condition there's paradox in there there's contradiction and we need to kind of learn to live with that and not think that we have an absolute hold over every everything and you know this for her this is represented in the cross and christ's crucifixion with the vertical axis 
being the kind of ascent to grace um, and the horizontal axis uh, representing uh, necessity and gravity and, and Christ's crucifixion very much representing the, the pull of the human being between these these two forces as it were um, and almost the impossibility of the human condition as being forced to kind of live with both of these opposing axes these opposing forces as it were so you know that for the the, the cross is very important for Vey as a as a symbolic of of the way she thinks well it's a christian image isn't it it's, absolutely it's a violent yeah. image very. when you look at it as literal sense you mm. know it's mm. uh it's also about well, it's also about pain suffering affliction absolutely redemption absolutely uh, I mean, it's very violent though tiff isn't it it's like there's <laughs> a guy dying with a spear in his side and he's got a crown of thorns and he's bleeding and all of those things and that is yeah i can see the appeal for a mystic yeah I can see the appeal for it's a blend of the material and the spiritual yeah. isn't it because it's yeah. about resurrection and redemption as absolutely. well. absolutely and 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 it's it's what you know there's an there's a humiliation to it that they is really interested Absolute. in it's the kind of that's affliction when you're absolutely degraded um and she talks about christ's childlike cry you know why have why have thou forsaken me and that's what's sacred in the human being that expectation that good will be done to us but that it isn't done to us um so you know that represents the kind of sacredness as well of the human condition that just expectation that we will go on ex you know that we will go on believing that good will befall us and then good doesn't befall us and then that's painful and that's just the nature of being a human being well let me talk to you about that then if i put on my nietzsche hat wouldn't nietzsche be very critical of that you know this this brutal ascetism this 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 commitment to suffering you know he would i suppose consider that to be resentful in some way and is that something that gives you pause or something that you worry about yeah that, that hardcore ascetism tiff yeah i suppose uh nietzsche would would think that it's a kind of a saying no to life right it's sort of a, a non-affirmation of, of life um, but they thinks it's precisely in those moments of suffering and affliction where life is is most clearly seen. But yes, it's a horrible thought. <laughs> Who wants to be crucified? Um, you know, in order to know what it is to be a human being. Who wants to kind of, you know, she sees a, a common truth and affliction are both manifestations of the same thing essentially they kind of are the same thing there's a truth that is revealed in affliction that is also there when you do something a calculation that's perfectly correct like a geometrical uh you're figuring out a geometrical problem or something um so there's basically a truth that's being exhibited in affliction a truth of the human condition laid bare to us that she thinks is lost when whenever we're doing something which our person our imagination gets in the way of you're stripped bare in affliction essentially um, and it is horrible and but they says that there is there are ways in which that can you can willfully assent to affliction which make it generative of opening yourself up to grace and the good and truth but there are also ways of of being uh, of not of not consenting to affliction that don't have the generative aspects to it as well so affliction is not always good and positive it has the capacity to bring right. to truth but if someone's doing it to you and you're not consenting to it you're not consenting to the to kind of the obedience of something else um then it can't have that generative aspect and bring you to truth um so it, it is problematic and yes absolutely i find it very uncomfortable and troubling yeah and troubling yeah yeah so and there is that that asceticism then well it's about self-sacrifice i mm, guess mm. which is a very christian theme yeah absolutely. it's about renunciation which is a very mm. christian theme or kenosis mm. so yeah so for the listeners kenosis is oh i'm gonna say ancient greek term and uh i think it means so it's, it's, it's connected to the, to the resurrection actually and the um it's connected to the crucifixion rather and kenosis is about emptying so it's like I'm I'm sort of <laughs> reaching back into my dark past here to, to figure out what this <laughs> yeah. is. It's about Christ emptying himself of his own divinity, mm. right? Mm. And that's what makes him fully human. Mm. Mm. And that's what this is about. And that's very demanding, isn't it? Not everyone can live up to that, I don't think. I think this is what a lot of people struggle with, with Vey, is that what she demands of you as a person is, is, exa- is exhausting you know is really exhausting uh they would they's death was 
you're kind of shrouded in kind of controversy. Um, Go on. She, on her tombstone, it says she died of tuberculosis, but ultimately she decided not to eat anything more than her occupied comrades in France. When she was a child, at the age of five during the war, she refused to eat sugar because sugar wasn't available to the fighters. So she always tried to imitate um, and and feel the suffering of others through like a radical empathy. Yeah. Rad- precisely, it's it's a radical form of empathy where you really try to feel the suffering of others through the taking away of your own material comforts. And there are lots of you know uh, ways that kind of you know she's from a middle class affluent family, so there are conditions in place which were uh, which uh, allowed her never to suffer in the same ways. But nevertheless, the quote-unquote self-starvation that she went through definitely contributed to her own death. So that level of Christian exemplarity is, it's very difficult to not call that self-destructive. Mm, mm. And she's in line with a lot of mystics on that. Like, you know, mm. the mystics are the martyrs, the mystics, you know, mm. you know Joan of Arc, like, you know, mm. she did welcome that, that burning she got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think self-destruction is a really interesting point because, again, we go back to this concept of decreation. Now, decreation, she says, is not destruction because you're left with something afterwards destruction is 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 destroying something and turning it to nothing in total yes a total destruction absolutely whereas decreation is like almost like a a, a reforming of something it's like a there's a creation involved in decreation you know god gives up his entire self for the for to give life to kind of humans necessity time space matter etc um so he kind of decreates uh and they's practice was the practice of decreation now it probably came very close and perhaps too close how's that different to destruction that's what i'm interested which is what you're driving at right yeah the difference between decreation and destruction is is a really good point and and Gravity, in gravity and grace the section entitled decreation opens up with they's own notes on this she says decreation to make something created pass into the uncreated destruction to make something created pass into nothingness a blameworthy substitute for decreation and in that sense she's kind of making a distinction between the uncreated um the kind of completely impersonal that which isn't kind of produced externally by the imagination of society and destruction um which is makes something into nothingness there's nothing left after an act of destruction um so god didn't destroy himself in giving birth to the world and its things etc he just uncreated himself so in many ways you know he's not a pantheist it's not that god is the world but we're definitely made out of the absence of his withdrawal um but there's not nothingness which is which is what destruction leads to yeah i got to ask the marxist question there like you know what's well you know how does she help the wretched of the earth yeah by starving herself to death this is a very kind of blunt question but i'm I'm curious to see think what to what end did that what did that what did that accomplish yeah and what does you know the the followers how what do they make of that Mm. it's a it's a brilliant question because i think they would have a very very different position in intellectual history had she continued writing beyond the war like her contemporaries like you know sartre de beauvoir Camus, etc bataille who she's a protagonist in bataille's the blue of noon i don't know if you if you knew that she i did not know that she's she's oh i can't remember the name but she's a protagonist in there you know she would have had a, a certainly a different position in in intellectual history now how do people think i would have loved to have seen what she'd have gone on to write you know i would have loved to have seen more fully formed books you know i suppose the only proper book that we have from ve is the need for roots and the need for roots is a very strange book that she wrote for the free french movement while in exile in in london for it was being sent to Charles de Gaulle's government and so on. Yeah, she didn't she return from... She, well, like many uh, secular Jews, she fled the Nazis to America, but she returned to Europe to help so very much practice what she preaches. She wants to help them practically and concretely. So she returned to London, which is where she died, right? Yes, absolutely. She died in, in Kent. So she went to New York and then uh, was too far away from the front line. So she returned to London. Uh, she wanted to be... Uh, sent to uh, the front line she wanted to be sent back to France to to fight and to be kind of a resistance fighter uh, they wouldn't let her 
Um, so they put her in an office and, and kind of commissioned and said, well, how, you know, how do we rebuild Europe? Kind of a bureaucrat, yeah. Basically, how do we rebuild Europe after this? Thinking that she'd create this brilliant policy paper and she wrote this kind of book called The Need for Roots. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> which, um, which is really uncomfortable in lots of ways. You know, it's, it's thinking of things around about kind of nationalism and patriotism and how we can be connected to a place, how people can be connected to a place such that they don't then... Um, go and uproot others um so she's thinking about the colonial question but also the question of you know nazism's kind of rise and uprooting of other people and what year did she die she died at the age of 34 in uh, 1943 in 1943 yeah and so we so going back to that question the marxist question what how you know what is that level of she decreated herself but that's also as far as i can see it's synonymous with destroying herself yeah. right and in some sense in wouldn't it have been better for Simone Weil to be in the world writing her books doing her activism being a pedagogue mm. and materially ensuring that the wretched of the earth have a square meal yeah yeah the, the selfish part of me says yes I, I want her to have done all, <laughs> I want her to have done all that work I want her to have produced all the stuff that we can read and reflect upon and do all those different things but there is a the, mm, be careful how you say this there is perhaps a virtue to being a martyr <laughs> as it were because her life is incredibly intensive and I think it, it gives a gravity to her work that means that you read it with a seriousness that you perhaps don't read certain other political theorists that's not to say that I think she was right uh, who am I to say that she was right or wrong to do what she did but it, it is to say that it gives her work a particular uh, angle or frame that is almost inextricable to the kind of content that it's talking about but I don't quite know how to reconcile it all okay. well let's talk about her politics then because that would be the next thing so you, st- you started talking there about her in a very traditional conservative way talking about the need for rootedness mm. And I suppose being, you know, if you're a Marxist, you're going to say, well, you know, conservatives don't own that, you know, Mm. you know, people, everybody needs to be rooted. Everybody Mm. needs to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of uh, community. Mm. But she's talking about rootedness in a very specific way. She's also talking about nationalism in a very specific way. Could you maybe speak to that or explain that or talk about where she was thinking in that latter part of her her life, what she was having to say about them? It's going to be interesting, really, because she is Jewish and, Mm. you know, well, Jewish people are not having a a very nice time to say the least at this point in history yeah I think there's recently been a book published by Robert Chenevier in French I haven't managed to read it yet called uh, Simone Ve, uh, Simon a, a Jewish anti-Semite um, question mark there's a question mark at the end of that and you know her that there there are lots of anti-semitic tropes around uprootedness and Ve's criticism of Judaism is at the time of what was happening in Europe was was very difficult so she's thinking through in that kind of book the need for roots she's thinking through she sets out what she calls the needs of the soul and these include things like attachment to a place um, attachment to kind of a community but also things like private property Uh, she thinks that it's perfectly valid for people to have a place that they can call their home um, and that they can take respect and, and love over and so on. So she has these kind of conservative, what we would now call kind of conservative inflections, as it were, that, de- that that kind of develop into this, yeah, the needs of the soul, basically, that she says that all human beings need this in order to, to live a kind of, quote-unquote, kind of good life that you that you can. And rootedness is, is very important to this. And I, I really struggle with that with that concept. I'm not entirely sure how she uses it properly but if you're if you're uprooted that's synonymous with kind of affliction for Vey and she sees the modern condition as very much being uprooted and she's writing very much on the citizens of nowhere as Theresa May said citizens of nowhere but not in the way that modern liberals would say that as like of a, a good thing oh I'm a citizen of nowhere uh, I'm 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 a man about the world as it were mm-hmm. she thinks that no one chooses to be like that so that she's writing about the colonial question and the uprooting of of the uprooting of peoples by the British and French governments, that if we had a choice, we would be more rooted. Um, but rooted, as she says it, rooted in the absence of place. So How does that work? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> it's very complicated. It's one of these paradoxes that Bay is talking about. How can we have a form of national pride, almost, without borders? Um, how can we be rooted somewhere? Well, these are the fundamental questions that we are struggling with, isn't it? Precisely, yeah. And and and, and How do you discriminate patriotism from nationalism, say. 
Exactly. And she's thinking about those things and she's thinking about the, the left um, and the modern uh, the modern kind of uh, liberal condition can't get away with ignoring those things and talking about what we now feel very uncomfortable. If you go to a friend and, and you know, they're on the left and you say, are you patriotic? They'll, bris- they'll bristle. They'll <laughs> yeah, bristle. Yeah. They won't know what to say. They'll I don't be- understand that, really. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But they're thinking, well, no, we have to have some sort of relationship to the place that we live in. Otherwise, you all end up completely uprooted by the mechanisms of of capital and the mechanisms of like states, the states and so on. So then to tease out what her political philosophy is a bit more, she's also critical, I think, of egalitarianism or maybe not egalitarianism per se, what would be the right word? Quality or rights-based equality might be more accurate. So the liberal understanding of equality. Yeah, absolutely. She's very critical of rights. So she believes that rights do not protect anything of what is important in the human being. Uh, in human personality, that that essay I referred to earlier, she says you can. She says rights have a kind of economic flavour. Um, they have a a, a commercial flavour. They have. If you agitate your rights, uh, you do it in a confrontational basis and say, "Well, actually, I have." She says the farmer has the right to sell his eggs at a price that he deems fit but she says if you if you talk to uh, a person who's been a, a woman who's a prostitute who's been forced into a brothel talking about her rights to not be there would seem completely absurd uh, there's something happening deeper than rights and so she makes a critique of rights-based forms of justice and reconceives that and says, okay, well, that's not the way that we need to be thinking about how we protect what is sacred in every human being, which is that expectation that good and not evil will be done to them. That makes sense to me in terms of what you've said already, Tiff, because in a very rudimentary understanding of rights-based liberal discourse, what's the idea? We all have inalienable rights. uh, And I understand human rights-based equality be just that, like it's a set of binding commitments or contracts that we all agree on, which humans have. Mm. Of like, I don't know, free speech, freedom of assembly, mm. freedom of movement, freedom to pursue property, pursuit of happiness, mm. all those things in those big documents. Mm. And that does make sense to me because it's all something individually based, isn't it? It's all something that the individual inalienably has. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, sure, it might be the case that we haven't lived up to those commitments in certain parts of the world, but that's where you start. That's the framework and she would say that equality is actually too individualist or too personalist. Yeah, certainly in terms of equality, she's going to say that there will always be kind of inequities in power between people. But even when those inequities, are, she says, you know, what, what we have to do is not necessarily search for ways of making those inequitous power relations go away. There's always going to be someone who's stronger and someone who's weaker. Rather, it's it's forcing the stronger to act in a more appropriate way relative to the weaker. So inequality doesn't make sense from the human condition. Some people are powerful, some aren't. Some are taller, some are shorter. Precisely. So the 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 way of justice is to form in people the idea that they don't have to take from the weak if it is available for them to take from them. That the weak have to consent um, and that there has to be more of a of a relationship of um, dignity and respect. It doesn't mean the power relation ceases to exist. It just means that it's not uh, enforced, as it, as it were. Um, like I said before, you know, if the powerful always take what they want uh, from the weak without the weak consenting, well, there's an inequitous power relation, and that's like reinforced by the action. But if the powerful say, well can I have this or you know do you consent to me having this and the weak says no well then there's still an inequity in power but the justice doesn't necessarily follow from that inequity in power the justice is done when um the sorry the injustice is done when the unequal power relation is kind of acted upon almost right so it's about activity again it's about doing for yeah. as always it's a practical thing and I said she's not into equality which is perhaps a bit unfair because she is into equality but not but rights-based meritocratic equality Mm -hmm. I I suppose so maybe we could talk about that and from what I understand her ideas she talks about the political equality of the eternal 
the the universal, which is based, she says, on a mutual community of needs-based human obligations. So that's where you start. Mm. That's where you start, rather than saying everyone's equal. Yay! You know, which is that much good to use to the sex worker in the, in the, who's uh, being coerced into working in a brothel that you yeah. talked about. Yeah. But she thinks it's more, I don't know, productive, more enriching to think about of equality as based on needs. Mm, mm, absolutely. Uh, the needs that people have and the obligations that we have to them. Um, and those obligations are not because those people have rights. Um, rights, uh, like I said, they stay at the surface of something. They're kind of, they have an economic flavor and all these different things, a transactional flavor that you kind of enter into a transaction with someone. There's no real kind of care or ethical disposition to the person when you're only doing something because they have a right. Actually, we should believe that there are certain obligations that we have to people. And she tries to map those out later on um, when she talks about the needs of the soul and these sorts of things so needs and obligations become the new vocabulary through which she tries to kind of reconceive how a just society might look like outside of the language of liberal rights discourse basically I mean I see a lot of overlaps I'm familiar with Martin Buber I'm not familiar with Simone Weil and he also was someone a mystic his philosophy was guided by mystical experiences as well. I and Thou is very much, you know, is a mystical outpouring mm. and, uh, into page form. But politically, when he moved to Israel, he was emphasised, he was very much into like the kibbutz movement and things like that. He's into, mm. I guess, anarchic decentralisation or systematic decentralisation. And that's the type of politics she's pursuing. It's And maybe I'm getting this wrong, but she's looking for a politics which is based on face-to-face, reciprocal, mutual relations, concrete human relations, Mm. rather than something that's mediated by, I don't know, a state or a power or a corporation, something like that. Absolutely. She thinks the only thing more dangerous than saying I is saying we. Um, Right. (laughs) So she's very critical of the collective. We're all going around in those days, yeah. Yeah, very critical of the collective. You know, often uses Plato's terminology of the great beast, of the the mass that can't kind of think itself. Which makes her not a populist, I guess, then, doesn't it? Because, like, you know, the populist is the idea that the populist is he who speaks for the we. Mm, mm, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, you know, believe that you really can't speak for anyone else almost. But the we just doesn't allow for thinking, she thinks. Uh, And thinking is very much a need need for the soul. You know, people need to be able to think according to their own, um, according to how they kind of want to. And so the we takes that away. Um, and even if the we is communism, even if the we is something, you know, um, or fascism, you know, it's it's the same religious. thing. Religious? And religious, even if it's Catholic. You know, like she said, she, she refuses to take baptism, she refuses to enter. She doesn't want to join a club, basically. She doesn't she? want to join a club, exactly. She wants to be outside the club. That's why I like her, I think. That's why I'm finding her interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, uh, Brendan Bean said, like, you know, said, first thing you do, you know, say, I propose a split when you join any club. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly, know? yeah. All that it's gra- best for everyone, really, because it's got to get there at the end. Yeah, all the Groucho Marx quotes, I wouldn't want to be in any club that would have me right, as a member. Right, right. <laughs> so, so what, in practical terms, does that systematic decentralisation look like? You know, she's, I take it, she's got involved... Uh, well, nation is going to involve home, uh, it's going to involve country, tradition, culture, very traditionally conservative themes, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to it's going to require a big reconceptualization of what all those things mean, <laughs> which, you know, is laid out in the need for roots. Um, but it's it's a, it's a huge project because, you know, the modern liberal tradition has given us these very bounded ways of understanding those things and that's why she's very much working against the grain of of she's saying well actually how can we how can we reconceive these things especially on the left as well to bring that discourse back and to those to those what are now kind of dirty words nation pride these sorts of things but which actually are very important needs of, of what she calls the soul um so it's a, it's a huge project of reconceptualization and of, of vocabulary Yes, yeah, so it's about spiritual sustenance. These things, I, I think, absolutely, yeah, and and work and work being central to this as well. Her idea of 
of work being a way we can reconnect to a place and to ourselves um so long as it's consented to um she wouldn't like zoom then she would not like zoom she would really not like zoom no but uh and she definitely wouldn't have liked teaching on zoom <laughs> during the <laughs> pandemic yeah. well she kind of got a good point there because like, you know because teaching is teaching is an encounter it has to be practical it has to be there you know it has to be present teacher student you unfurl the possibilities of the future there are all these fantastic stories of of vase uh trying to fit in these moments of teaching in you know quite inappropriate places so so when she was working on a vineyard in the south of france when she went down and worked on a vineyard uh she'd had a copy of the symposium in in Greek in the Greek in her pocket, and she'd <laughs> she'd, pop out she'd, she'd take it out and would try and teach the workers uh, what was happening in the symposium. Well, it, why not? Well, why not? Exactly. So she would do that, and she was constantly looking for for those opportunities for teaching. Question then, I think that this all leads me to the Machiavellian question, because she's not going to like Machiavelli. <laughs> clearly, you know that decentralization. I suppose my concern would be. And again, I, I know very little about Simone Weil or how she would address this or if she had the time to address it before mm-hmm. her, her death. And that's the question of power, political power. In that de- systematic decentralization, I see a very Christian theme in that. It's rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Why not Caesar? Why not let's take Caesar and, and use Caesar productively? And I guess that would be something she would find a problem. She does have a very strong concept of power but she calls it force um and she she writes this quite famous essay called uh the iliad or the poem of force um and it knows homer's iliad yeah exactly yeah and and she she writes in it how force has the kind of almost like brute necessity of of matter and the what what, that drives humans and everything else is that which people think that they wield and people suffer force as well but actually no one can ever wield force it's um it it drives you so she says uh, both the victor and the vanquished suffer force equally uh, it corrupts absolutely if, if, even if you're the one who suffers it or the one who wields it so kind of her politics very much takes as a central theme how to arrange society as it were without one person wielding force and another suffering it and she thinks that revolution is kind of pointless because all you're doing is you're just changing hands this these people had force before forced to subjugate others now this person or these people have force and they will then subjugate others but because force corrupts whoever has it whether you suffer it or wield it it's still a poor way of living basically um so she's she's thinking through elements of how we can uh, avoid the effects of of force as something which corrupts in indefinitely um so yeah power is very important but understood as force and understood as something which needs to be almost negated in in kind of political discourse and in political activity so then to try and draw things to a close after all we've talked about in simon v where do you see her speaking to today's debates in politics where do you see her speaking to today's spiritual, spiritual needs mm. to today's economic needs mm, mm, environmental needs mm. i think i think she's having a little bit of a renaissance at the minute and i think she's having a renaissance because we're in a situation and people are going wow we've got all these brilliant explanations of everything but things are getting worse and worse <laughs> so maybe, dose of the crumbles. basically yeah so so let's look at someone who's maybe using a different vocabulary let's look at someone who's speaking in ways in which oh that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable a bit awkward and let's see what we can take from that without necessarily taking the radical kind of asceticism um and see where we end up you know and especially for kind of projects on the left when you are appealing to uh you know you're wanting to to reinvest certain words patriotism pride nationalism whatever it might be you're wanting to take those back from those political forces that have corrupted them and to say well you know it's it's all right to be proud of something it's all right to kind of like your homeland and think that's important or whatever so i think there's a lot of people going hmm, here's a person who's, who's who's reconceiving some of these terms which have been appropriated and which, but actually which are quite politically useful and i think that's the way that they is going to speak to the next kind of 10 15 20 years in the way that she's reconceiving some of those key key ideas that make a lot of people bristle but they're quite but those people are unsure of why they bristle at them if anyone was interested in 
taking up Simone Weil, finding out more about her. What would you recommend to do? I think that a lot of people come to Simone Weil through Gravity and Grace because it is, it's very fun. It's just these kind of short aphorisms and these very clear headings, decreation, attention, work, oppression, etc. But it is confusing and it does give a kind of skewed understanding of her her, her, her output, really. It's, it's a posthumously edited collection of fragments from her notebooks by someone called Gustav Tibon, who she gave all of, all of her notes to. Rather, I say, a better way to approach Vey, which you get a, a better sense of, of, of kind of her more systematic interests is through the essay that's translated in English as human personality. Um, is that available widely online? Or? Available widely online. It's in a Penguin anthology. It's in uh, another collection that she's got. And it's um, perfect because it touches upon many of her key concerns. It's quite a late essay. Um, and you can find out everything from her concept of the sacred in there, her notion of affliction, the idea of attention that we've spoken about, her critique of the liberal discourse of rights, etc. So it, it's really a good place to start. Okay. Thank, thank you very much, Tiff Thomas. Thank you. <laughs>